On this episode of AvTalk, we see what the initial data tells us about the crash of Pakistan International Airlines Flight 8303, and we sit down for a roundtable discussion about the state of the industry and where aviation is headed as the normally busy summer travel season begins. Hello and welcome to episode 86 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik here as always with Jason Rabinowitz. And hi, Ian. Hello, Jason. How are you, sir? Um, that's a lot to unpack in that very short <laughs> question. <laughs> oh, yeah, it, it is a lot to unpack. I, I don't have an answer to you for that particular question. But we're going to, I think, muddle through this episode as best we can and hope that in two weeks, things are very different. But a lot has happened in these past two weeks, most notably the crash of Pakistan International Airlines Flight 8303 in Karachi. There has been another wave of aircraft retirements as airlines continue to downsize their fleets. There has been so much happening in in the world of aviation as airlines and air framers and, and everyone tries to figure out continually what comes next. And I don't think anyone's found the answer to that yet. So we'll we'll keep muddling through it. Speaking of muddling through, we are going to have on the program a cast of characters joining us in a little bit. And we're just going to, to talk through some of the issues facing the aviation industry from some various perspectives, media enthusiasts, and uh, of course, folks who work in the industry. So I, I think that'll be a rather interesting and, and eclectic conversation. And I hope everyone uh, gets something good out of that. But let's start first with the Pakistan International Airlines crash. That crashed on Friday, the day that the last podcast came out. So the, the 22nd of May, early morning, our time, um, about uh, midday in Karachi. The aircraft had flown from Lahore and was bound for Karachi and conducted one approach and then attempted a go around and crashed during that attempted go around. The information, the data that we've received from the aircraft was not ADSB. So, unfortunately, there's no position information included. But we did get a lot of extended MODES data from the aircraft. So, that has provided a, a great deal of insight. Things like altitude, indicated airspeed, true airspeed, vertical rates, and things like that. From everything I've seen, this just didn't look good. Yeah, so we, we the authorities and I think that the French have taken the lead on this so far have recovered both the uh, flight data recorder and the cockpit voice recorder and have taken them back to France. They transported it, I believe, on an A330 800 Neo, yes. which is uh, an interesting little bit of information. Do with that as, as you will. But they transported that back to, I believe, Toulouse, and they were able to successfully download the contents of both recorders, which um, if you've seen the pictures of those is always shocking that they're able to get anything off them because they look absolutely terrible. 
I mean, they they are des- they are literally designed to be crash proof. Yeah, but it's always amazing that they 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 really are in, in almost every circumstance yeah. readable, and that's no exception in this case. But the the data that, that was pulled from the extended mode S painted a, a not so great picture. They they came in fast. They came in steep. It was not a stable approach. That's what the the data is telling us. We're not making any conclusions, but the initial data does not look very uh comforting it i'll leave it at that yeah we can say that for sure the indicated airspeed uh for for the aircraft on the first approach did not go below 200 knots on the first approach and only went below 200 knots when the aircraft was already conducting its go around after the go around was initiated the aircraft lost power in the engines and that is what led to um that th- that's the the direct what directly resulted in the crash there's evidence based on markings on the runway that the aircraft did in fact touch the runway without its gear down but we're still waiting for all sorts of additional data from the flight data recorder to to really understand w- what happened obviously this is like any crash investigation, will take a significant amount of time, and there won't be a final report for for we'll say you know a, a year or so. But a preliminary report should be forthcoming, and, and hopefully we'll learn more there. Yep. So we'll see, and as we always say, we, we'll keep you updated as we hear. Um, I believe we'll have some sort of initial uh, fact finding report within the next week. I think. I think that's what they've said, and it, it will see what happens at that point but it'll be interesting to know some some of the the finer details uh, hopefully when that report is issued speaking of keeping updated uh, on things that happened something we talked about i don't know how many episodes ago but this was in 2018 the very serious incident with a Szechuan Airlines A319 where the first officer was rather severely injured because the right windscreen disintegrated, came out, and and the, the first officer was partially sucked out of the aircraft. That's a bad day. Yeah, it was a very bad day. And the final report by the safety branch of the Chinese um, Aviation Commission came out this week. And so the final investigation pointed to the likely cause as a, uh, a long chain of tiny things going wrong that led to the, the windscreen shattering. So there's a power supply wire that runs underneath the, the windscreen to, to keep the windscreen uh, to supply power to the windscreen heaters. And there had been a gap opening up that allowed water vapor to enter. The wire you know, eventually corroded uh, because of the, the water. And so there was uh, power uh, you know, being arced off of that. And the temperature caused the eventual rupture of the glass. When that ruptures enough, the pressure changes enough and the window blows out. And the first officer also blows out in this particular yeah, case. Yeah, uh, partially blows out. Yeah. So, was managed to stay mostly in the aircraft and received 
medical attention when when they landed. We'll link to the report, though it. Um, yeah, good luck it, reading it. If you don't speak Mandarin, you might have some trouble reading it. We're going to try and track down an English uh, English translation to put in the show notes if possible. But we'll we'll link to to the report nonetheless. So uh, yeah, um, we've always talked about you know it's always a, a chain of things. It's never just one thing that causes an accident, and this certainly was uh, another example of that. Shall we talk a little bit about who is now retiring aircraft and, and some of the retirements that we've seen over the past couple of weeks? All right. I guess we should. Well, we already knew this was coming, but it, it, it finally happened. It was, uh, in some cases, accelerated by a few months or a few years. But today, on June 2nd, we're recording, Delta has officially operated its final MD-88 and MD-90 flights. So the the Mad Dog is now gone from all major U.S. airlines. Yeah, you're going to be hard pressed to find yourself on an MD88, especially an MD90, anywhere in the world, really. At this point, and I don't even know what other airlines operate the MD90 at this point. Can you think of any off the top of your head that operate the MD90? No, not off the top of my head. Yeah, I think Delta was the sole airline, uh, commercially at least, in the world to be operating the MD-90. I don't see any other instance in my uh, access of the the flight, the global flight schedule. So, that actually might be it for that type. Wow. Yeah, that's uh, didn't really think about that until right now. Well, the, the breaking news, there you have it. There you go. That's more depressing than I thought. Yeah. It's been so weird to me that these retirements have gone. I mean, I was talking about this with someone earlier today where, you know, just last September, you know, American Airlines retired their MD-80s and and we were in attendance and it was a party and there were hundreds of people there and they were flying in from all over the world to say goodbye to this aircraft that had been such a big part of the airline. And now, you know, major fleet decisions are being made and and passed off with a press release and a tweet. Yeah. So, I'm sure Delta at some point by uh, what was originally planned to be, I believe, December of this year, I'm assuming they had planned out a big bash for the MD-80 retirement. It was a huge, huge, huge chunk of its fleet, especially down south until very recently. I think it was like 40% of all departures out of Atlanta were uh, a Delta MD-88 not too long ago. But now we're, we're down to zero, and I know we're going to have people uh, write in, call in, tweet, airmail, Ian saying, well, the days of the McDonnell Douglas and the detail at Delta are not done because they still have the 717 or whatever you want to call it, the MD-95. Uh, so the, the 717 is McDonnell Douglas blood, but its name is Boeing, which right. is a way to put it. Right. I mean, it, 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 you know, it's it's not to say they're they're quite tiny, but the seven one seven fleet is relatively small compared yeah, to. It's smaller now too. I think they're down to forty something in, in the COVID era. Right. So I mean, it, the numbers are are shrinking, no matter what you want to call it. And right after we recorded, Air France put their entire A three eighty fleet out to pasture. Yeah, of course. Uh, in tradition of this podcast, major news was announced uh, literally moments after we hit stop. But we expected this; it was coming. We we knew there were uh, 
there were eight Air France A380s were going to hit the chopping block sooner rather than later under the new uh, plan with their CEO, Ben Smith. But we didn't expect to really all of a sudden have them say, okay, the A380 is out of our fleet uh, permanently. They will not be returning ever. Yeah, I think the initial plan was what, 2022? It was a gradual phase down, yeah. Right, right. To be done with the the phase out by then. So there's an extra 10 frames if anybody wants a couple A380s. Yeah, no, no, nobody, nobody wants those. It's going to be very interesting to me to see what happens to those because I feel like at least some of them are going to find, and I'm talking about A380s in general, not just Air France's. I feel like some of them are going to find work eventually. Why? I don't know. None of, we have only managed to see one A380 be repurposed with, with HiFi. They planned to take two and they didn't even do that. Well, I mean, it'll happen eventually. Will Somebody it? will come up with a harebrained scheme. I, I, have, I don't know. I have full confidence that someone will come up with a harebrained scheme to, yeah. to put it, those it, A380s into service. It's not even to the point where there is a large fleet of other A380s out there to make these basically just parts cows, just park them somewhere and pull parts out of them. I'm sure parts that will, cows? Parts cows. I don't know what you want to call them, but they're going to park somewhere I, <laughs> and they're going to pull parts out of it until they're no longer needed and then it's going to go out the past. I've never heard that phrase before. And, Me and neither. I, I don't I, know what to call it. I really um, – that I'm sticking with that's That's okay, what they're called. Let's, let's go with that. But it's not like there are hundreds and hundreds or thousands of other A380s out there. These aircraft are essentially useless unless somebody repurposes them and puts them back in the air, which just is not going to happen. I'm telling you that somebody's going to come up with a harebrained scheme a few years from now. Okay. And it's we'll going to be just so crazy it might work. Baltia. <laughs> My Baltia stock is worth one half of one half of one cent. Mm, All 300 million uh, shares. That's almost one half of one cent. We should do an app. For anyone who doesn't know the story of Baltia, it was basically an investment scheme masquerading as an airline. And only for I, I a couple decades. Only for a couple decades. And, and I really think that, Jason, we, we should do an entire episode, if not an entire episode, but, but a large segment of an episode on Baltia because the story is absolutely bonkers and fascinating and really tells you a lot about, I think, airlines and I want to say not investment, but risk taking with your money, which is to say that if you gave the money, you didn't get it back. Yeah, I even had an unpaid job offer from them once upon a time. And isn't that an internship? Yeah, uh, we'll, we'll talk about that if we ever get to that episode. Okay, we'll we'll start working on putting this together, and and perhaps later in the summer we'll come up with this because there's you know there's some other things that we can include in uh, in this particular particular episode, but we'll we'll leave that for now. Which is to say that there is a big chunk of A380s sitting around doing nothing. So if you want one go get one and see what you can do with it. The other thing that that kind of came out this week is Ikeo's framework, their CART framework as they're calling it, which is their four, I guess, five stage plan because there's a stage zero. So I think that would be five stages, but it starts at zero and goes to four. Anyway, their plan for 
getting airlines back in the air and, and things like that was released. So walking through that a little, they're talking about you know stage one being the initial increase in passenger travel. Stage two is things where the medical criteria and the passenger volumes have continued to increase. There are measures required at airport, such as health screenings, temperature checks, and things like that. Stage three seems like we're a long way away, uh, where the outbreak has been sufficiently contained in a critical mass of major destinations worldwide. So, So we're still talking about kind of before a vaccine, but after things have, outbreaks have, have calmed down. And then stage four is really kind of the most return to normal where you've got a vaccine or, or other pharmaceutical interventions in most countries. And you can start kind of standing down all of the health screenings and and border you know checks and, and things like that. And then they go into very specific details for airports, aircraft guidelines, crew guidelines, what to do for cargo and, and things like that. So a lot there. We'll put a link in the show notes to it. But it, it's good to see that there's somewhat of a standardization here, which I, I think is the the most important thing rather than what the actual guidelines are at this point. Yeah, I don't totally agree with a lot of what they have put out, but at least somebody is putting something out that we can all work towards. But I, I see a lot yeah. of this as, as as meaningless chatter that, that just says we should make sure that people don't stand near each other and do our best to limit lines and limit waiting times. If, if airlines and airport authorities and governments weren't expediting the baggage reclaim process, or the security checkpoint process, or any other process before, why do they think that's going to happen now? The entire airline experience is basically about standing close to each other waiting for something else to happen until you're on a plane or even after you're off a plane. I don't see how we can just magically snap our fingers and and solve these problems by putting out a few bullet points, but I hope to be pleasantly disappointed and, and I think we were talking about this earlier, where the issue isn't necessarily being on the plane. It's, it's everywhere else. Ha- yeah, it's, it's everywhere else. It's- you, you enter an airport, you wait online to check your bag. Then you wait online to get your boarding pass. Then you wait online to go through security. Then you go into a cramped uh, gate departure lounge, which was designed for a 30-seat RJ or 50-seat RJ, and you're actually flying a 200-seat A. 321. Then you get on the, then you, uh, this happens a lot in Europe. You go, uh, they start boarding, but you actually just stand in the jet bridge for 30 minutes for some reason. I still haven't figured that one out. Um, then you get put on a cramped bus with 200 other people. The whole, the whole process of flying is just very contradictory to the guidance that they're putting out now. And I hope there's a plan that is more than just a full few bullet points and loose guidelines to follow. And that actual overhaul of the process is actually coming. I've said my piece. I've ranted enough. I have a feeling that that's not what's going to happen. Yeah. But we will see. So so speaking of, of talking about what's coming up and, and where we are in changing the process, let's take a quick break and then we'll come back with a cast of characters, shall we say, to talk about just those those very things. We have no idea what we're going to talk about. We, we really don't, which is what makes me uh, very excited about this upcoming conversation. So we will take a quick break and be back in a few moments to talk about whatever it is we end up talking about.
Welcome back to what uh, we're variously calling a roundtable or something along those lines. Jason wanted to call it the roundtable of sad. My idea is to to at least keep it to calling it the roundtable of melancholy. We'll see where we land on uh, that one. But we've assembled a motley crew of – we are now joined uh, – it's Jason and, and myself, of course. We are joined by all-around avgeek aviation enthusiast, and he now says former aviation journalist, Jeremy Dwyer Lindgren. Jeremy, welcome. Thanks so much for having me back. Also joining us now is Seth Miller, aviation journalist currently, although he didn't sound so enthusiastic about that a few moments ago before we started recording. Uh, so we'll see how, how much we can get out of, out of Seth. <laughs> Seth, thanks so much for joining us. I'm curious, if we are all at a round table, does that make us all knights? Ooh. Are we aviation knights? Sure. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Totally. Uh, I think that's how it has to go. Joining us as well is Ned Russell, a uh, aviation business reporter. Ned, thanks so much for joining us. Happy to be here. Hi, Ned. And uh, last, but certainly not least, someone with a, a unique perspective from the group, Joseph Schmidt, who is a current airline pilot. So uh, Joseph has joined us before on the program to talk about flying Embraer aircraft, and I'm really glad that he was able to join us again. Uh, Thank you. It's a pleasure to uh, be particular. here. Appreciate it. Yeah, I'm happy we got this bunch together because it really represents people who are wholly outside the industry, people who are tangentially connected to the industry, and people who are uh, both feet in the industry. So hopefully we can get some interesting roundtable discussion out of what the hell is happening right now? Yeah, exactly. The whole idea about this particular conversation is to understand we're really roughly three months in to a sea change in global aviation. So finding out what's happened, what we think is possibly going to happen, or at least looking at uh, signs for how things are going to be changing over the next the next three months. So just I'll throw it out there. I keep getting asked, when are we going to get back to normal? And and I've not been able to satisfactorily answer that question for anyone else or myself. And let me say this, are, I'll, I'll step back a, a, another step. Are we ever going to get back to normal? What is normal? I mean, I'm going to get back on a plane again. I'm certain of that. So is that normal enough? Maybe, but- <laughs> When will we get back to okay? Let's and, we'll, and, we'll and take a bit what of is normal. Uh, clap back. No, there, no. But like I, that's me. I, I no. I, I, <laughs> I take it. No, no, no. I, I take that because Mike was like, when are we going to get back to uh, normal levels of activity? And given all that has happened so quickly, I think Seth, that's a a lovely, valid question. What is normal? Yeah, um, why because don't we certainly, have to find what it is. What is normal to us? I think normal to me is going to be the day that I don't think twice about taking my son on a plane. I should, for those that don't know, I have a 16-month-old son. So, you know, that's going to be normal. That's a pretty good baseline. I think for me, it's being offered a trip or a plan or a business trip or something. Say, hey, do you want to fly from New York to Tokyo? Oh, by the way, the flight leaves tomorrow and you have to pack right now. And I don't think about it. I just pack it and pack and go because of course I'm going to. And I don't have to think about what are the health restrictions? Are they letting Americans in? What do I have to do? What are the restrictions? Um, when I can just think, not even think about getting on a plane and get on a plane, that's what normal represents to me. 
I guess then then the question becomes is what will it take for you to think things are normal? Because I mean, right now we're we're health checks, we're masks and gloves and and things like that. Can normal still exist if you're wearing a mask? I'd say yes. Or you know, or or is there something? Yeah. I mean, I lived in Hong Kong for several years, and mask wearing is much more common there than it is here. You know, it's something that I think will become common among Americans and among traveling in general because of this crisis. You know, I think I think it's going to be like Jason said: the it's all the restrictions when you land will places be open once once the whole sort of universe of travel starts to feel normal as long as you follow whatever the new guidelines are going to be mask wearing uh you know get a covid test or whatever i think that's that's sort of what the the normal situation is going to be for me i you know, i understand the idea of needing to wear a mask i get it and certainly for a short haul flight no big deal in my mind if, right now if i have to go to europe the only way i'm doing it is on the daytime flight from boston to london and then i'll overnight if i have to or connect onward because I'm not going to take the mask off on the plane and I'm not going to not wear the mask. I'm not going to wear the mask while I'm sleeping on the plane because that's just not, I think something that I'd be comfortable with trying to do. And so, you know, could I go to Asia right now that way? I think it would be hard. I'm, I'm not sure how I would make that work. And for my definition of normal, I think it's being okay on the plane with Ned's kid behind me. Uh, <laughs> Hopefully he's sleeping. <laughs> well, okay. Well, babies don't wear masks. So there you go. No, I agree. Yeah, I'll uh, I'll interject here if you guys don't mind. For me, uh, normal is as simple as as just getting back in the airplane again. The last time I flew was actually March fifth. Ever since then, I've been on a a leave of absence, so I've really kind of been uh, separated from a lot of the changes that have occurred in the last few months, uh, just from from mostly just seeing and watching on social media, um, and and seeing what people are, are having to go through in terms of changes in the aviation industry. So. Uh, so I know it sounds kind of simple and uh, and, and basic here, but uh, as soon as I can get flying again, it'll be nice. Albeit uh, it's in a safe and uh, and uh, you know safe environment moving forward. No, something I've been rattling around in my brain a little bit is what do you need to do to get back in the air? Do you, is there anything you need to do? Are are you still current? I think you said you're current. Um, can you just? Yeah, it's a great question. Yeah, so I mean, I'm coming up on uh, on on the period that normally the summer months are my busiest. Uh, not, not only in terms of uh, actual flying, but also in terms of getting recertified. Um, so I, number one, need to go through the simulator at some point, uh, not only to get landings, but also to go through my normal uh, yearly requalification course, which never got done as a result of all of this. Um, so before I can fly again, that needs to happen. Uh, in addition to that, I have to somehow figure out a way to get my medical exam uh, that, that happens every year uh, done this month, even though my current AME, which is the uh, medical examiner, he's actually uh, uh, out of the office at the moment. So there's a little bit of, you know, calculation that needs to go into that as well. Uh, so there's there's a couple of things that need to really, you know, happen before I can fly again. It's not just as simple as, oh, you know, schedules are back up, ready to go here. And I think that's the case uh, with pilots at basically every airline right now, especially since the majority of us aren't flying. Now, that's one of the things that I, I think, Jason, we talked about that in the a previous episode where, you know, dealing with a large number of pilots coming back to work, you know, all at once it seems to be one of the kind of the big choke points in, in getting everything back to 
whatever we end up calling normal. Joseph, has there been kind of discussion or have you seen anything about how airlines are approaching that and saying, okay, when we do get going again, this is this might be how it works or, or is that still a discussion that's, that's a ways off? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, as far as I know, I, mean, I actually reached out to a member of my union just to see, uh, they're, they're actually in the scheduling department just to see what the uh, status of my uh, schedule would be. And they said, okay, well, it's going to be a normal uh, bid period where you go ahead and see which uh, which training line you want to bid for, et cetera. So uh, there is some sort of plan to get people back into the simulators because if, you, uh, if, 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 uh, if you've noticed, a lot of the airlines have stopped their new hire training. So the, the, you know, in a normal situation, you have recurrent and current pilots going through to, to, to re- regain currency and maintain currency at the same time as new hire pilots going through and getting uh, accustomed to the system. If you if you halt all the new hires and they're, and they're basically not touching any of the simulators, now you can use that all for uh, getting pilots that expire in currency back into the airplanes. So if there is a plan. And, you know, obviously, I, that's way above my pay grade in terms of understanding uh, exactly what the plan is. But uh, I'm sure it's going to be a large effort. I mean, if you look at the mainline carriers, you know, the larger airlines like Delta, you know, you know American and United, uh, they're, they're facing, you know, p- potentially year plus uh, training footprints to get everybody reaccustomed to the fleet types that they're, they're being reassigned to. So it's a, it's a really, really, really uh, intense shakeup in the industry right now. We've been talking for months now about the the effort it was going to take to get the 737 MAX pilots trained and in simulators and back in the air. And now it's and that seems like small potatoes compared to everything right. else, doesn't it? Exactly, exactly. I mean, this problem is, uh, you know, 10 times at least uh, bigger than that. And we're not just talking about, you know, a few pilots on one fleet type. We're talking about multiple fleet types being shifted around as a result of uh, potentially thousands of pilots that aren't uh, necessarily needed as we go into the winter months uh, ahead. So I want to shift kind of back into the cabin for for a little bit, and 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 Seth and Ned, maybe you guys and, and certainly Jason have some insight into this. What are airlines doing beyond marketing to ensure that passengers are going to be actually safe or feel safe when they uh, get on the aircraft? Good distinction. Wow. I really think that airlines are trying at this point everything. They're throwing it all against the wall and seeing what sticks. I think the days of blocking the middle seat are numbered. They're coming to an end. Some airlines are doing it through June, some through July, but all have said this doesn't actually do anything. It gives passengers the the feeling, the appearance of uh, social distancing, which is really just not possible on, on not just aircraft, but public transportation as a whole. You can't have six feet between people. But they're doing all sorts of things, and I think Seth can probably tell us a bit about what airlines are doing. Yeah, I mean, you've got everything from get on board. You get a the new version of the amenity kit, which is even in economy class, you get one now. Yay! But it's a mask, gloves, and alcohol wipes to or sanitary, you know, to clean things down. That's sort of the default at this point, and asking and or requiring passengers to wear the mask is a big deal, although a number of the U.S. airlines especially have said they're not going to have the flight attendants enforce it. So there's that. We saw just today a bunch of people on a party flight for the retirement of the MD-88 and 90s from Delta, and many, many of them not wearing masks, which was That was so disappointing yeah. to see. Then again, they also started ripping things off the plane, like physical placards and stuff, so also yeah. disappointing. I was, I was um, so maybe we shouldn't have expected more. Not them on board. <laughs> Yeah. But, you know, so that's, I think, the big thing that's going to stay longer term. Beyond that, there are some airlines that are 
requiring tests. Emirates was doing tests at the airport, if I remember correctly. If you're arriving in Switzerland or Austria, one of the two, you could get a test on arrival. It was Austria. You get a test on arrival. And if you cleared, you didn't have to do a quarantine. Right. So there's a lot of different things like that. Even in uh, Tokyo, they were doing tests with a couple hour and wasn't you didn't pay for it like you do in Austria. But you you would have to wait in the terminal until you got your results back. And I think in Hong Kong, they use the convention center right near the airport for similar things. So that's definitely something that's happening. Yeah, I think Iceland announced the same thing as well, but with the a capacity to test well, well, well under the actual flight capacity they were restarting with, which to me is a recipe for just Are they only to. testing people arriving? Or are they testing all transit passengers? Everyone arriving, 500 people, I think, was the test capacity, but two of their aircraft alone carry more passengers than that. So how's that going to work? I, These are the things I'm talking about that I don't want to have to think about when I travel, and we are so far away from being able to not think about that. Yeah. I mean, the other thing that some airline, I should say the airlines, the uh, vendors want the airlines to do is install sort of semi-permanent blocks of various things and panels and such to separate seats. So that's the other sort of interesting thing. We've seen a lot of, we'll call it innovation, none of which will probably fly, at least not for, you know, pandemic related reasons. Some of it could become the new version of Eurobiz at some point, but yeah, some interesting stuff. So you've got airlines basically saying, here's some hand wipes, wear a mask, please. Right. Um, And yet we're seeing service restarts in in a lot of places. Are we starting too soon? I think it's, we may be, maybe we're not. The thing that I'm seeing, I'm hearing from the airlines is people are eager to travel again now. I'm with Jason on, you know, sort of, let's, let's wait a few more weeks to see if this won't result in another spike in cases but you know it's people are are traveling to to leisure destinations you know florida i guess vegas once it starts reopening those uh those places have they've been saying they've been people are flying there but then again you get pictures of like busy beaches with people not social distancing so that's why i said i would definitely wait a few more minutes or a few more weeks before i <laughs> I, I go out. So we're in a, we're in a rolling delay now. We've yeah. already gone from minutes to weeks. <laughs> so the, the minutes feel like weeks at this point, unfortunately. Th- this is true. This is true. Yeah, I agree with these. Starting the to feel like one of my LaGuardia announcements. Oh, yeah, I, say, I agree with the airline executives' premise that people want to get back to travel. I certainly want to get back on an airplane and go somewhere, but I also know that I don't need to right now, and and I don't want to say it's unsafe, but I certainly don't think it's worth the risk for the employees, for other people I will interact with along the way, for sort of any of those other parties involved. So it's something I'm not keen to get to right yet. Yeah, it's not worth traveling unless you really need to be there, in my, in my opinion. Jason and I talked about this a little bit you know, earlier in the episode where we're getting kind of, you know, the, these frameworks for, you know, Ikea has come out with their, their cart framework for restarting. IATA's supporting that, you know, various airlines are, are doing various things. You know, we've talked about what the new normal is. I mean, when are airlines going to or come out of their, you know, pandemic mode or or hibernation mode or something like that. And then, you know, if if things come out too early, how difficult is it going to be to go back into that? Well, I think that's what management teams are trying to determine right now. The big deadline that everyone faces is September 30th. And that's when the CARES Act 
uh, sort of restrictions come off and, and airlines can furlough or lay off staff. Um, they can, you know, cancel service to cities without having to get the DOT to waive it. Uh, but I, I think airline management are taking the summer to really try to figure out how much should go and how much should come back come September 30th. And Ned or, or, or anyone else, you know, you guys follow this uh, quite a bit more closely than I do. What are they looking at come September 30th? I, my guess is they're looking at a lot of different models on, you know, how recovery will go. They're going to see how people come back this summer, where they come back, you know, and, and try to extrapolate that out, you know, with some you know, cautious optimism that, you know, they're going to, people are going to come back at a rate of what, 5% a month or something. And I'm just throwing that out there. I have no proof or anything. And they're going to say, all right, well, based on that number, we need, you know, X number of aircraft next summer. Yeah. And I think the future bookings uh, column is going to be uh, pretty important too. Yeah. But they're going to, they're going to try to trap with that. You know, I think one of the Wall Street analysts wrote that the CARES Act really is breathing room for the airlines. And that that's what it is. I think airline management is going to, are going to take the few months they have now that they have a lot of their costs covered by the taxpayer uh, to try to figure out what their business is going to look like at the end of the year and next year. And I think sort of looking even outside the United States on a more global level, we have to account for, you know, it's going to come down to whether borders are open. Europe, we're seeing some semblance of reopening this week, this month. But then we've also seen like Emirates push back a bunch of things uh, that were supposed to open in July until August because it's just not quite right yet. Um, And, you know, when you start getting rules about people from these countries can come without a test versus these others that need a test or quarantine on arrival, it's hard, especially, you know, in the Schengen world where it was supposed to be open borders to see that the rules all different and everything shut down again. But it's the each country, uh, I think, are, they're sort of acknowledging that the reaction was very slow and disjointed from the get go. And that's a uh, tough position to be in. Oh, yeah. Any airline whose business is built on international travel is going to face a lot more challenges than one that has a large domestic market to, to fly in. So I thought we would kind of close our conversation with a bit about where we're headed. So there are a couple things that, that I think are worth talking about. Um, Seth, uh, you earlier mentioned what's just around the bend. Um, and then also what what airlines are more likely to fare less well in all of this. Yeah. You know, I think you touched on a little earlier of how hard would it be to come back if we have to go back into another shutdown of some level. And, you know, if the borders are closed again, if airlines have to come back, you have to scale back again. And the economic impact of that on the airlines is one thing, but I think the sort of human impact and ability to convince passengers, no, no, air travel is safe. It's just everything else that's a problem uh, is going to be take a huge hit, right? Like I think that's really the biggest risk I can think of at this point is if you ended up with, you know, coming back and everything's going well, and then at some point in the not too distant future, either, you know, some level of pandemic resumes or spikes somewhere, and we have to sort of shut down again. That's, I feel like, not only is it where we sort of feel the progress and recovery is slow right now, but if there's a setback, it's going to be even slower the next time around. 
I, I agree. And that's what worries that. me. You know, I would like, I feel like with the, the aid package in the U.S., we've averted, you know, bankruptcies, Chapter 11s for the most part. They're barring a few regional carriers. But I think if, if this does come back and there's another turn down in nine months or whatever, I think that's when we start looking at an airline potentially filing for Chapter 11. And I don't won't say who, I don't know who, but I think that's when that might happen. I'm going to add Mesa Airlines, a regional airline, to that list as well because they've survived pretty much everything too. <laughs> yeah, but they've survived in a slightly less corrupt and uh, ridiculous manner, right? <laughs> slightly. I think, well, if, if anything ha- has shown is that, you know, certain airlines will never go away and and it would be interesting to see what would happen if they were allowed to, I think, meet their natural end. But that doesn't seem like it's going to happen. It's just going to be you know, good money after bad. But yeah, I, I do think it'll be interesting to see what happens um, because everyone, and by everyone, I mean, you know, looking at modeling of, of COVID-19 and things like that, you know, there's a second wave coming. And it, you know, historically speaking, there's always a second wave. So how do you navigate that? I think is a conversation that probably should have been a much larger part of the initial conversation as far as airlines and travel reopening. Um, but it's certainly going to have to become a bigger part of the conversation, you know, sooner rather than later. It'll be a conversation by the end of this summer. Jeremy, I, I think you're right. I, I think that, you know, by the end of the summer, we're, we're going to start to see, see that start happening, you know, especially is, you know, with the expiration of the CARES Act, coming in the US and then also the the coming of the school year where in a lot of places we have no idea what that's going to look like so i think counting on a lot of travel taking place might not be it might not be there and that's another thing that we can save for another conversation i want to thank all of you for for coming and doing this. We should do it again sometime. I, I think we we moved above roundtable of sad into melancholy. At least we'll see if we can have a roundtable of joy sometime in the near future. Thank you, everyone, so much for attending this roundtable. Uh, we will talk to you all very soon. Thank you for the night. Thank though. you. Perfect. Thank you very much, gentlemen. Have a good day. Welcome back from what was a rather interesting and wide-ranging conversation, shall we say. And if you're still listening, congratulations. <laughs> a few quick things to round up the round up the episode. The Mitsubishi Heavy Industries has taken over Bombardier's CRJ program with Bombardier making its complete and likely final exit from commercial aerospace. I'm still not fully aware of what's going on here. I will say I did not like that in the uh, the app earlier this week, the Bombardier CRJs suddenly turned into Mitsubishi CRJs. That was jarring and I didn't care for it. I apologize um, for that, good but sir. But I'm still confused about the whole thing. So I think Mitsubishi takes over the parts lines and the final production of whatever CRJs are left to come off the line before totally shuttering that. Um, they'll they'll assume, I guess, the maintenance or or the the parts distribution 
for the CRJs before the space jet becomes their primary concern, but they just withdrew from the US entirely. So maybe that doesn't even happen. Uh, it's it's confusing. There, there's a lot going on. Yeah, they, they get the they get the type certifications for the CRJ. They get the maintenance and support role, and then what they do with that remains to be seen. I guess. Yeah, I still think it's a valid question. And why do we call it the Mitsubishi CRJ but not the Boeing MD88? What what's the difference there? So the difference is that it was an active line. And the changeover was complete. They bought the whole package. Interesting. Okay, that's I can see that. I don't like it, but I see it. I I mean it, it's uh, it is that that's what it is. I mean nobody nobody's going to call it the Mitsubishi CRJ, and, and nobody anyway. has to. I mean you know it's, it's that's just what it is though. Speaking of airplanes that have been renamed, the first U.S. built. Airbus A220 took its first flight out of Mobile today. Hooray! And this is uh, one that was actually produced on the uh, what was intended to be an A320 family line, I believe. So this is not the first A220 built in Mobile in its own dedicated assembly line. That's still forthcoming. That won't happen uh, for a couple months. But yeah, that's cool. The first US built A220 takes flight for it's destined for Delta. I think it's still of the smaller variety, correct? I believe so. So that, a one hundred uh, and not a three hundred. I, I believe but that is correct. I, I we wonder need to if double they, check. Yeah, I wonder if they have finally figured out how to get the uh, basically the doormat at the one L door to read A two twenty instead of C series. We'll have to book a flight eventually and find out. We, we have to track down that aircraft because that was a weird thing that aircraft still being produced relatively recently were they had this very nice, I guess you could call it a doormat or something uh, like a sticky part, sticky surface near the entry door that just kept reading C-Series. And I was told it was a certification thing that they had to get changed to move that over to A220. So if I, w- I wonder if this aircraft does that. What? It yeah. was a certification thing? There's some weird certification thing. That's what I was told. I don't know if that's true, but what, why what else they, would- they, I bet the real answer is they just made a, like a hundred thousand of them. And they're like, <laughs> we're just going to use up the be. C-series floor mats before we're, we switch them over. But if you've ever flown an A220, you know exactly what I'm talking about. That It's, it's hard to miss when you step on that's the aircraft. That's hilarious. It's like their little- uh, their little- the last vestige of, of branding. Yeah. All right, then. Let's call it an episode. Yes, please. All right. Before we go, we've got a thing. We have a ton of t-shirts. And so here's the deal. Go online, go to iTunes or wherever you listen to the podcast, leave a review. We're not going to tell you what kind of review to leave because that's that's not what we're about, but leave a review. If you like the show, tell people what you like about the show. If you don't like the show, tell us how we can make it better. Take a screenshot of the review that you've left and email it to podcast at fr24.com along with your address, and we will send you an AvTalk t-shirt. So that's the deal. Go and do it, and you will get yourself a t-shirt. Oh, also let us know what size t-shirt you want. 
that's helpful. That would be unless very you helpful. just want a generic face cover, unless you want a surprise T-shirt sizes. So do that. Reviews and ratings really help other people find the show, and we like doing this, and would like continue to continue doing this. So please help us get the word out that way, and you get a T-shirt. So that's all I've got for this particular episode. Is it this- Av Talk T-shirt? Is it a Flight Radar Twenty Four T-shirt? It is a dedicated AvTalk t-shirt that contains wow. the words Flight Radar 24. So I guess it is I don't both. even know if I have one of those. You should, but- I'll leave a review. I don't know what to tell you. I think you've already got one. Anyway, so do that. It helps us. You get a t-shirt. Everyone's happy. This has been episode 86 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik here as always with- Jason Rabinowitz, and thanks for listening and stay safe. Stay safe.